0: Psalm 56 this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, as we turn to Psalm 56, there are men coming up the aisle right now and they have Bibles, just wave and get their attention. They will happily get a Bible into your hands and then if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. In Psalm 56, the psalmist poses the question twice in the psalm, and that is, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And we're given, in the title of it, you can see uh, the introduction to the psalm. It's to the chief musician, set to the silent dove in distant lands, which was the, uh, what the music, the, the words were to be put to that music, and it was a mictum of David when the Philistines captured him uh, in Gath. And so David writes this at a time in his life where he is fleeing from King Saul because of King Saul's attempt to kill him. Uh, One of the places that he fled to in the course of uh, those years of, of wandering was into the Philistine capital, one of the Philistine capital cities, of Gath. And here in Psalm 56, we're given a glimpse into kind of the uh, mental turmoil, the emotional turmoil that uh, resulted as a result of being in that environment and a single great uh, truth that anchored his heart that kept him from sinking into despair and into fear. Uh, I don't know where you live in this city or wherever this teaching might go around the world, uh, but the world is becoming gaff (laughs) more and more quickly by the day, run by the Philistines, and uh, run and and dominated by ungodliness and dominated by sin, and so it makes the world a harder and harder place for a child of God to live in, and so we are, all of us, tempted as time is going on, things are moving worldwide in a a wrong direction at the moment. And so there is that tendency as we see the trends for our hearts to be gripped by fear, for our hearts to be gripped with despair or hopelessness at what it is that we're watching uh, happen. And so we wonder, well, what in the world can we know about God? What in the world can we say to God that will uh, help us maintain perspective and also maintain hope? in the midst of all of it. And this is how God did it with David and has tremendous instruction for us as well. David said, be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. And so he's surrounded by his enemies. He's in the midst of his enemies. His enemies desire to swallow him up. just like a wild animal eating its prey. This is uh, how he viewed these uh, men of Gath. He said, fighting all day, he oppresses me. And so it's an environment of, of physical oppression, emotional, mental oppression, uh, spiritual oppression, the city of Gath. You know, it's interesting, I don't know how you see things, but, you know, since this uh, great kind of uh, drive off the economic cliff that occurred in you know, 2007, I mean, the, the whole, it's just been like four years of melancholy. I mean, people are eager to sing, they're eager to jump up and down, they're eager for some kind of good news. I mean, it's just been a, a dismal one bit of bad news after another, after another, after another, worldwide, one step forward, three steps back. Everybody sees terrible things looming on the horizon if there aren't changes. All of these things to have an impact upon our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, our emotional uh, well-being, our mental well-being, have an a effect upon us even physically. And so this is the kind of environment that David is in. We may not have, you know, somebody, the the whole atmosphere of gaff, be somebody living with a machine gun next door to us, but the vibe is is very, very strong in the world in which we live. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day. He's hunted by his enemies, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. And so... There was lots of people that were in that category of oppressing and opposing him. And then his solution to all of this, this fear that he had, he said, whenever I'm afraid, doesn't say if I'm afraid, he says whenever I'm afraid, everybody has cause for fear in this world. And so he says, whenever I am afraid, all right, we're sitting on the edge of our seat, what do you do? He said, I will trust In you. So fear comes into our heart. It's a reality. It's a real emotion. It's a reality in our lives that this comes our way. But we do not have to allow fear to uh, set up camp, much less build a city or a subdivision there. So fear does come, but I need to realize in every age for us as Christians, I can determine whether I'm going to allow that uh, fear, that emotion of fear to continue in my life or, or whether I am going to do something with it so that I don't become dominated by fear. Fear is a choice. We wouldn't have a choice, an, uh, an alternative to fear if we did not have God and the promises of God. And sometimes it's good for us to hear that. We just think, all right, fear grips us, and now we just got to ride this fear wave out for however many hours it is or how many days or weeks or months or years that it might be. That's not the way that it is. When our hearts are gripped by fear, David is teaching us, what we need to do is to work things in our life in such a way that that fear causes us to be reminded that this is an opportunity to put our faith in God. We are afraid because we are looking at some circumstance in our life in the light of our own resources. We never fear when we look at some situation in life in the light of God's circumstances. It means our vision is too small So when we're gripped by fear, there's the realization that, all right, I'm looking at this in a very limited way. I need to look at it in the light of God, and so I choose to put my faith in God's Word and what He has to say. So every cause for fear in our lives as Christians in the world, God has something of His Word that speaks to that, that is the remedy for fear. And so the key is to then find that. What does the Bible say about this circumstance? And then say, I choose in the power of the Holy Spirit to trust in this promise rather than to invest any time in fear. After a while, you just get sick of living in fear. (laughs) You just don't want to invest another minute uh, in it at all. And so he says, I will trust in you. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. And it's just the strength of it. It's like he's kind of speaking to his spirit here. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. Now you can change the circumstances. For him the cause of his fear was the fear of man. These are very fierce, violent, violent, ungodly men that were seeking David's life your circumstance may be something different but we can all say I will not fear and then in his case what flesh uh, uh, what can flesh do to me God had promised David that, that he would be the king of Israel one day And he is not yet the king of Israel at this particular point in time. Saul is still the king of Israel. David will ultimately become uh, the king. And so David looks at this and he says, I will not fear what can flesh do to me. And the idea is in the light of your promise. You said I'm going to be the king of Israel. I'm going to be the king of Israel. What can man do to uh, make a liar of God? to make one of his promises false related to our lives. And so David is teaching us that no human being will ever thwart God's plan or his purposes for our lives. What God has promised that he will do for you, he will do for you. The circumstances that make you doubt that, those circumstances guaranteed, like on a commercial on television, is guaranteed those circumstances will change. God's promise will come true related to your life. And so we can read the volume of the book. He describes the uh, actions of, of his enemies. All day they twist my words. And their thoughts are uh, and their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps. In other words, they're following him around. And when they lie, when they lie in wait for my life, and so they're seeking an opportunity to ambush him or to kill him. And he said, uh, "Shall they escape by iniquity and anger?" David said. Cast down the peoples, O God. So he calls on God to repay them for their uh, evil. And then he begins to express his praise to the Lord. He said, You number my wanderings. And so that's just a poetic way of saying that God knows everything I'm going through. God, God is watching everything that's happening in my life. You number my wanderings. You're watching all of this, Lord. It's kind of comparable to Jesus' statement in the New Testament, where he talked about the very heads, uh, the very hairs of our head being numbered. That's an ever-changing number, by the way. <laughs> After a certain age, it's it's always a declining number, as well, no matter who you are. But it doesn't just speak of the fact that, boy, God knows everything. He knows even the number of hairs on each one of our heads. It's the fact, it's communicating the fact that God is that current with our life. He knows instant by instant even the very numbers of of our heads. And so David realized that the Philistines were the only ones that were watching his life. God was watching his life as well. And David said, uh, also declared concerning God... Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? And so David recognized, another, again, a poetic way of saying, God, you know what I'm going through. You know how hard this trial is. You know the tears and the grief that this particular trial has produced within my life. And so you not only know all of the circumstances, but you know how this circumstance is impacting me. And so you gather up my tears into a bottle. In other words, you treat them as something that's precious to you. And he said, when I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back, for this I know because God is for me. David says twice, he'll say it in this psalm. He says, he says once in verse 4 and again in verse 11, I will not fear what can flesh do to me. as a beautiful statement of faith. What was behind that statement of faith? What was central to that statement of faith? Right there is, as it's, it's declared in, in verse 9, this I know Because God is for me. You believe that about yourself tonight? You, as a child of God, you ought to believe that, each of us. That confidence that God is for me. We're so so readily conscious of everyone that's against us or everything that is against us as Christians in this world. I mean, we recognize that immediately. But that needs to be countered with the knowledge that God is for us. And I think that sometimes, again, these, these Psalms are songs. I mean, this one was to be uh, put to the silent dove in distant lands. They sang these songs. Why did they sing, why did they sing these Psalms and why is it important to sing Something like that in verse 9. This I know because God is for me. Why do we need to do that? Because we have a need to say that to God. We have a need to, to proclaim that to God. We have a need to say that out loud. And it's important in our lives to just stop and is necessary for our own reminder. And to say, I know that God is for me. Here are the Philistines. They've just jammed up the city of Gath. Every one of them is seeking my life. That's all on one side of the scale. On the other side of the scale is the knowledge and the assurance that God is for me and His call upon my life and His purpose is for my life. And you tell me, did David become king or did he not become king? He became king. <laughs> didn't matter what the Philistines were doing. And again... It's so it is with every promise of the book as it relates to us. We just put all of it on the one side of the scale. And the fact that God is for us on the other side, that's the winning hand. That's going to have the final say in the circumstances. And I want to say, related to Psalm 56, maybe a couple of other psalms that we'll be looking at tonight, we have a need to say this kind of stuff out loud to God. Not so that he can be reminded, but because we have a need to say it. We cannot remind ourselves too often in this world that God is for us. And it does something good to say that. Uh, out loud until sometimes we don't believe it and to say it until we do believe it in God I will praise his word and the Lord I will praise his word in God I have put my trust I will not be afraid what can man do to me and then he speaks of vows apparently had made vows to God God if you get me out of this situation I'll do such and such and uh, for instance, I'll offer sacrifices for you or whatever it might be. And so he says, vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you. He has the confidence now in, that he is going to survive this trial. He is going to be able to keep his vows to God. For you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before God in the light of the living. And so, whenever I'm afraid, David said, I will put my trust in you. And trust and faith is a decision, it's a choice we make in the face of fear. And so, when we fear, the idea is that's to be met with something, and it's to be met with faith in God to say, I choose to trust in you in this circumstance, and no one can be successfully against me. In light of the fact that you are forming. Of course, Paul brings that out in that famous chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 31. And what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the idea isn't if God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. Lots of people are against us because God is for us. Who can be against us? The devil the ungodly, the world, our own flesh. But the idea is who can be successfully against us. And nothing in this world can be successfully against us because of the fact that God is for us and because of the fact that God loves us. The love of God Paul goes on and he writes in that same chapter. He moves from this whole fact of God being forced to the love of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And he begins just to ransack the universe to try and find one thing that can separate us from the love of God. And he comes up empty handed. I think that if we were as confident in the love of God as God wants us to be, and it, it, then we would never fear in our lives. If we really knew, I mean, the, the deepest consciousness of how much He loves us, it would banish all fear in our lives. The greatness of God's love for us. Never be too confident in the love of God in your life. Never think, I'm demanding too much of the love of God. I think too much of the love of God. I'm too confident in the love of God. Never do that. Believe in the love of God. I like it in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul writes, and he says, speaking of the love of God, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. No matter how confident you are, in the love of God for you tonight. The love of God is infinite beyond that. We can never be too confident in the love of God for us. And God wants us to have that kind of of an understanding uh, of His love. Psalm 57 is a psalm for seasons of preparation uh, in our lives. And Uh, The faith that we need to meet a difficulty with while God is preparing us ultimately for his calling on our life. You notice the title, a mictum of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. So again, we remember David was anointed king of Israel by God through the prophet Samuel in the city of Bethlehem. He is no older than 20 years of age, probably younger than 20 years of age. David will not become the king of Israel until the age of 30. So he goes through a period of preparation for becoming the king of Israel that covers a period of 10 years. That's a long time. 10-year preparation. Sometimes it's great. You'll talk with somebody who's a Christian, and I'm not making fun of it. I think it's, it's fabulous. Somebody will say, God has given me this promise related to my life, and they lay the promise out. I say, praise the Lord. That's a fabulous promise that He's going to use you in that way and you're going to serve Him in that way. Fabulous. God's going to entrust that kind of influence for the kingdom of God to you. And then sometimes I walk away and I think, oh boy, what a period of preparation he's going to have or she's going to have. You know, it's wonderful. God keeps us kind of semi-blind. He gives us the promises, and we're so... He gives us the vision for our lives, the calling for our lives. Oh, boy, I'm going to be a pastor. If He told you everything that was going to be involved in that calling, you would run... To the farthest end of the earth, like Jonah did to try and get away from it. But he keeps you ignorant, and just unveils the price that gets paid. That's with any kind of calling that happens. So there's always preparation. And the bigger the promises, here David's going to become the greatest king of Israel next to Jesus who is coming, the Messiah. So this was a really, really big deal and it was going to require Tremendous preparation. And it is good for us to think about this with some sobriety and, and just to realize that. Yes, the vision that God gives to us, hold on to that vision. Be obedient to that vision and that call of God upon your life. But never believe that that vision is going to unfold without a season of preparation and a season that can be very, very difficult in deepening your godly character. But as hard as preparation is, a season of preparation for God's call upon our lives, always remember there is something harder. And the something harder would be to be put in the position that God ultimately has planned for you without the godly character to be successful in that calling. And God loves us enough not to do that. So there's always going to be that season of preparation. And the thing that you have to be careful of is during that season of preparation not to think that God has forgotten about His promise or to to come to some kind of a crazy conclusion like that. He's remembering the promise. That's the reason He's building a deep foundation in our life, putting in very, very godly character in our lives because He's serious about what He's promised to you, and He wants you to be successful when uh, ultimately all of that unfolds for you. And by the way, that never stops because God just keeps moving us on to the next thing, the next thing, and the next thing, and is calling upon our lives. And there is always development of godly character that is happening. is isn't like we get like this. Uh, we send in 50 uh, bazooka comics and we get like our little di- diploma. This is all the godly character that I need and we put it up on our wall Anybody know any, what bazooka bubblegum is anymore anyway? But, uh, yeah, laugh at me. That's great. So, listen, all right. Some illustrations, they die of their own. Uh, they should die, and they do die. We'll let that just have the rest that uh, it needs to. So on with Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me to me. For my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your, your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed me by. And so he cries out for this Calls, cries out to God for mercy in the midst of his calamity. He knew that the calamities were going to pass by, so he recognized this is going to whatever is going on here. Saul's attempt to kill me that will be past tense. That will be history one day in my life. I will be the king. So he recognizes uh, 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 that much, and that God has him in the shadow of. Uh, God's wings. You think, here's David, the big general and the tough guy and all this stuff, and he likens himself to a little chick under the uh, wing of a mother hen, and uh, it blessed his heart. And, of course, uh, all of us hit circumstances in life, no matter how tough we are, that we like that hen and that chick illustration, you know, that we're that close to God, and God is taking that a tender of care of us. I will cry out to God most high. That's a great name for God. It isn't God mostly high. God kind of high. The God that has called David was going to keep his promises as God most high. So he's got King Saul, all of the whole military of Israel, or the whole mechanisms of the nation are all set into play in order to find David and to kill him. David stops and he realizes those things aren't the most high. God, you're the most high. And whoever's the most high is going to have the final say in the situation. I will cry out to God, most high. We pray that, don't we, in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, that's our way of saying, God, most high. Now we bring all of our needs to you, recognizing that you're greater than any need we're going to bring to you. To God who performs all things for me, he shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. And so uh, he, the confidence that he had in God that God will send from heaven and save him. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. David recognized that God's mercy was limitless uh, toward him and that God's truth would prevail in his life and in his circumstances. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, their tongue uh, a sharp sword. So he describes his, his enemies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all of Uh, of the earth so he keeps them in perspective by keeping his eyes on the lord they have prepared a net for my steps my soul is bowed down they've dug a pit before me i mean god they're really trying to take me out into the midst of it they themselves have fallen and so god david is confident that all of this opposition is going to backfire on them again in the light of god's word and promise to him of course that came to pace uh to pass My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. And so here's David's song of confidence in the Lord. I will sing and give praise. He is articulating his faith. And again, we have a worship service as as we're led by the worship team in song because we have a need to sing these truths out loud to God. Sometimes people... uh, uh, We just, you don't want to sit and not sing to God. We have a need to say these things to God. And we don't have, we can't just like call Samuel. Samuel, could you come over to the house? I need, there's only one of them. We could do that anytime. In the shower, driving the car, whatever. We can just speak to God and, and, and speak, Lord, I put my trust in you. You love me. You're for me. Who can be against me? And, and so all of this praise was intended to be uh, spoken out. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. In other words, he was confident that he would survive the night uh, to... Praise the Lord once again. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. Again, he's communicating, God, I'm confident that I will one day be the king of Israel and we will find our place among the Gentile nations. For your mercy reaches to the heaven and your truth unto the clouds. He was confident this is all going to take come to pass, not because of his strength or even because of his faith, but because God is full of mercy and because God only speaks the truth. And if God spoke to David that he would be the king of Israel, he will be the king of Israel. Your mercy reaches into the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. And so a beautiful song of David just at times where he's in a discouraging kind of place where God has given him promises. It looks like it's taking a long time for that to happen. A lot of people look like they're between him and what God has called him uh, to do. And so through this psalm, he, he uh, has his uh, perspective set completely upon the Lord and is confident that God is going to, uh, again, fulfill his word that these promises are going to come true related to his life. And and so his life isn't in any kind of real danger. He is going to become uh, the king of Israel. None of that is in doubt. Uh, God isn't going to fail him in any way. The whole question is, would his faith fail before the fulfillment of the promises? That's the danger. The promise is in the future. That's going to happen. The danger is, is that we will lose confidence in God's promise before we see it come to pass. Is that you tonight? Don't, Don't shout out. But God has given you a promise concerning a situation. And it's a glorious promise. Yet here you are in this long season of preparation You didn't even realize there would be a season of preparation. Now you know there's a season of preparation because God loves you. And here some of us may sit here tonight and you've thrown away the vision God gave you when you were a brand new Christian or you were five years old in the Lord. You've just thrown that thing completely away like it's never going to happen because the preparation has been so difficult in your life. You dust that off. You embrace that once again. You're in the middle of a preparation for the plans, the full plans that God has for your life. The calling, God's promise, that's not in danger. Your faith to endure the preparation, that's the only thing that can sidetrack you or derail God's plan for your life. And Psalm 57 speaks to us uh, of the importance of just praising the Lord, keeping that vision alive, and uh, seeing in the light of Him, and uh, and offering up our worship to Him as a, a evidence of the fact that we know that this is going to come to pass related to our lives, however difficult things might look at the present. Psalm uh, 58 is a cry uh, by David for God to judge the judges in Israel. And the judges, every judge in every nation needs to know, here comes a judge, there's another judge. <laughs> David wrote and, and out of his own experience and and he, he communicated and said, no, no one is fit to judge God's people or to be a judge, period. No one is fit to rule over people who... Uh, do not recognize that they will one day be judged by God. How many judges in the United States of America do their, pass out their judgments with a fear of God and that one day they're going to give an account of, account to God for the judgments that they meet out from that bench and the privilege of being able to occupy that bench? I said it's a declining number, I would say. Praise the Lord for godly judges. But here is this. The judges at this time, what David is writing about, by and large, they have been become very, very corrupt. And so David calls on the Lord to uh, uh, to judge the wicked judges and to crush them. And so he describes the, the, these wicked judges and he says, Do you indeed speak Righteousness, you silent ones. In other words, they didn't speak what was right. Their judgments weren't right. Do you judge up rightly, you sons of men? In other words, they were, they were making judgments that advanced wickedness rather than righteousness. No, in heart, you work wickedness. And so they made these, not, they, they not only made these judgments, but they made the judgments that they made because they were actively engaged in wickedness themselves. You weigh out the violence of your hands uh, in the earth. And so the influence of these wicked judges was just simply to uh, enlarge wickedness in the world. So when a judge takes and um, uh, does not mete out judgment against a uh, theft or against armed robbery, or against whatever it might be. That's always a signal then to the undesirable element, the criminal element uh, of a nation that, uh, hey, they're soft on this, and the end result of it is the spread of violence and the spread of crime within the nation. He said, the wicked are estranged. So he now moves verses 1 and 2 talking about the judges Now in verse 3, he starts to talk about the wicked in general, the wicked in the world. You say, what's the connection between wicked judges and the wicked within a nation? Once the judges become wicked, then you're going to have the enlargement of wickedness within a nation. That's just the way that it goes. So that's why it's a big deal for there to be corrupt judges and, and, uh, and because it will have an influence society will follow the judgments that they make and so the wicked are estranged from the womb they go astray as soon as they're born speaking lies and so man is not born innately good we are each of us born into the world as sinners what's the great one great evidence of that the fact that we lie. Now, those of you who have children, did you ever have to teach your children to lie? <laughs> no, we give considerable effort uh, and to teaching them to tell the truth and not to lie. Lying kind of came naturally. You didn't have to say to your three-year-old, now listen, I'm going to ask you, where did you get that? And why is there chocolate all over your face when we told you not to? And then you tell me that um, you know, the neighbor boy made you do that or what? You don't have to teach him to lie. It's just, it just a part of what we are. And these judges were wicked, and, uh, and, the, and the wicked were wicked because they're born into the world wicked. Everybody is. We say, well, how can you hold them responsible for their wickedness if they're born into the world wicked? How can you hold a liar responsible for being a liar if he's born in the world a liar? Because there's an alternative, and it's called faith in Christ and become, becoming a part of the body of Christ. So there's a choice. No one needs to continue to be wicked or to be a liar because I can become a Christian and now have the Spirit of God in my life to live a different kind of life. So you can't shift out of responsibility For that, just because it's an accurate representation of the wicked. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. And they are like deaf cobras that stop its ears. In other words, it's a a deadly influence in a culture, wicked judges and wicked people, which will not heed the voice of charmers charming ever so skillfully. Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Wow, hold on a second, I need to underline that. Where's a pen here? Just highlight that. That's good. Man, is that is that in the Bible? That's fabulous. Oh, it's not done. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O oh Lord. Oh, we get to go punch them in the mouth and break out their teeth of the wicked? No, David asked God to do that. Ah, okay. All right. Technicality. <laughs> rats <laughs> so we don't get to do that not even in the in the old covenant and it, there was a system a measured system of of justice and judgment even in dealing with the wicked sometimes this kind of language like in verse six uh, it troubles a, a kind of a, a meeker heart or weaker heart related to these things they hit these passages and <gasps> break their teeth in their mouth oh god doesn't bother me at all. I'm like, I don't want to put anybody down. That doesn't bother me at all. I think there's a solution for it. Go live in any part of the world that is run by wicked rulers and wicked judges and live in the horror of that environment and see if you won't be within a week praying that God will break their teeth out. And the idea of breaking their teeth out of, of their mouth as lions, it means to render them harmless. Stop the damage that they're doing. By the way, it's good to realize, we say, boy, I'm glad I'm a Christian. I don't, think, I don't pray like David does here. Boy, what I tell you? Is that inspired by the Spirit? Yeah, it is. When you pray on a daily basis, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know what you're asking for? You're asking God to bring on Revelation chapters 6 through 19. And if you don't think that's one tough series of of chapters in terms of what you're praying, because that's what's going to be required for evil to be punched in the nose and eradicated on a sufficient level for Jesus to come back and establish his thousand-year reign. So we say it a little more politely in the New Testament, but there is a righteous desire that people would not be endlessly destroyed by wicked people who are in power, who are able to ruin so many lives. You think about in World War II, because of uh, the Nazis that joined Hitler and his whole deal, you know how many people died in World War II? Fifty million. Fifty million. Fifty million. Do you know how long it would take you to count the 50 million? How many of them were civilians? Had nothing to do with being in an army on either side in terms of casualty. You know how many people were killed in Russia and in the what became a part of the uh, Soviet kind of union under Stalin? Fifty million 50 million people dead because of the wickedness of one single human being and then the people that he surrounded himself with that allowed him to get away with that that's why david talks well we'll talk about another time i'm reading reading this biography on mao what a waste of time i'm sorry but i i just i don't know if i'm going to finish it what a terrible terrible indescribably terrible human being do you know how many chinese died under mao just within the last 100 years 70 million because of one man's wickedness and the judges and the people that were just sycophants that wanted their power too and they joined him and enabled him to do that he could have never got done that alone But people joined him. So a lot of innocent people become victims of this kind of stuff. All of that to say, I have no problem with verse 6. So on to verse 7. Let them flow away as waters which run continually. So you pour water out on the sand and it disappears. Let them disappear. When he bends his bow, let his arrows be as if cut in pieces. If you've ever tried uh, to shoot a four. Uh, part arrow, uh, you, you've been rendered harmless. That kind of an arrow isn't going to do any damage at all. Let them be like a snail which, which melts away as it goes and like a stillborn child of a woman that they may not see the sun. And so uh, in a miscarriage, of course, a miscarriage is always unexpected. It's an unexpected death. It is a sudden death, and David is calling uh, for that to occur in the life of the wicked. He says, before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. And so God, uh, uh, the, speaking of the judgment that God is going to bring upon the wicked, in those days they didn't have, they didn't have uh, where in the Middle East there's so much kindling made of wood. You'd have this great pot that would be put uh, under what is ultimately going to become the fire and they would just take thorn bushes and all that put it in a pile light it, it would burn very very quickly very very hot and uh, so david is saying when you light that it burns hot but before it even has an opportunity to heat the pot let alone where you're trying to cook in the pot may the wind just blow it away blow the righteous away and and just speaking of of uh, of uh, getting rid of the wicked and in a very kind of uh, judging them in a hot and a swift way. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance, and he shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. That, that the idea is at the end of a military campaign where the righteous are uh, come out on top, so that men will then say they'll learn the lesson, surely there is a reward for the righteous, surely he is God who judges in the earth and so the whole idea is there is a judgment that is going to come upon the wicked and uh, that is going to take place and then there is also a reward that is going to come uh, to the righteous that ultimately we will see uh, the righteous will see the vengeance of God uh, upon uh, wickedness and so again that this prayer of psalm 58 is a prayer that is uh, entirely encapsulated in a simple uh, line of what is the Lord's Prayer for us in the New Testament. And if that's too hard for you to take, uh, just disregard that part of the sermon. So, uh, Psalm 59. David writes in this psalm, declares... God to be his defense. And we're given the context of this also. This is a victim of David when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. So David had married Saul's daughter, uh, Michael, and, uh, and and then uh, Saul became insanely jealous of David. One night sent his uh, his kind of military guys to go arrest David with the intent of killing him. David slipped out Ahead of time, Michael, uh, with kind of a love for David at that point, she lost it for him later uh, because of her own her own fault in her own heart but they came to take David. the spying out the house for when they can catch him. David escaped. Again, God at work in his life. And so this psalm came out of, uh, of that uh, incident. So they're trying to kill David. God had promised David, you're going to be the king. And God wins. Deliver me from my enemies, O oh my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity. And save me from bloodthirsty men. For they look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. I haven't done anything worthy of death. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. And so we see here again, as we're talking in the last psalm, King Saul got to persecute David and the righteous only because he was supported by other men who were willing to do his uh, bidding. He would have never been able to do that if men had not been men and made a stand, a righteous stand against him and isolated him in that way. And so uh, these are. Um, I remember reading a book called uh, Hitler's Willing Accomplices, and just the whole idea was how he could have never gotten away with what he'd gotten away with without uh, having so many accomplices within uh, the general public. Not everyone was uh, for him, but uh, enough were that he was able to have that reign of terror even upon uh, the German people, and so here they come against David. Here, and uh, and and though he's innocent, awake to me, help me. And behold, you therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all of the nations, and do not be merciful to any uh, wicked transgressors. And so he calls upon the Lord uh, to punish the the wicked, these wicked, but to punish the wicked everywhere. He talks about the ad- activities and the attitudes of these of the wicked, specifically these men trying to hunt him down at evening. they return and they growl like a dog, so they 're threatening kind of men, and go all around the city, indeed, they belch with their mouth. Uh, Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? And so everything, every word that comes out of their mouth is an offense or does damage to people. And they say, who hears? In other words, there's no fear of God or the idea that God hears what it is that they're saying. But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. Sometimes people say, does God laugh? He does, but probably not at what you think He laughs at. He He doesn't laugh at jokes about, the the priest and the rabbi and the preacher. but something he does laugh at. He laughs at the idea that any single person or the whole world put together can think that they will disprove one of his promises or one of his words that he has given to his children. That he laughs at. And it's good for us. We see the wickedness enlarge itself, flexes its muscles, all of this. We get anxious, we get frightened, we get we say, Well, how how should we respond to this in a godly way? Well try laughing at it. The idea is of laughing to scorn, to look at it and say, There is no future in the direction that is is taking place right now. There is no future in this attempt to unthrow God is the God of the universe and the rightful King of kings and Lord of lords of the earth. And so we want to be like God related to that. We can laugh in the face of the attempts, whether in education or politics or wherever it might be, the judicial system to overthrow God. God knows it's not going to happen and we should too. You shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you O you, his, uh, his strength, for God is my defense. And so he commits himself to the Lord and for the Lord to defend him. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. He shall, uh, God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. In other words, he's going to live long enough to see their downfall. Do not slay them, lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, Our shield for the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them be taken in their pride for the cursing and for the cursing and lying which they speak. And so, David says, When you judge these folks, don't kill them instantly, turn them into vagabonds, turn them into outcasts within the nation. If you just kill them instantly, judge them in that kind of a way, then people will forget about them almost as instantly and they won't learn the lesson of their life. But if you allow them to continue to live for some period of time and people can then look at their lives and say, there is a living example, the fact that crime does not pay, wickedness does not pay. And so David is desiring that that lesson... That not only judge that God would judge the wicked, put a stop to the wickedness, but make it kind of a life lesson for those that would be tempted to engage in wickedness later there 's no future in wickedness. He said, consume them in wrath, consume them, that they may not be. He does say ultimately, go ahead and, and uh, end their uh, potential. Uh, for, uh, for wickedness and, and their, their influence for wickedness ultimately and completely with their death but not until the lesson of their life has been learned and let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth say la. and at evening they return they growl like a dog and go all around the city they wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied and so Here is the activities of the wicked. And then in verse 16 and 17, this is what David chose to do. The wicked are doing, they're doing what they do, which is wickedness. David said, this is what I'm going to choose to do in the midst of it. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. For you have been my defense and refuge in the day of trouble. To you, O my strength... I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my, uh, my God uh, of mercy. So he begins the psalm with an urgent plea for the Lord to spare his life, and then he ends the psalm in this great confidence in his God. And that's what happens. That's the effect of prayer, of course is that we begin to talk with God, and and I talk with God all of the time in prayer like this, take walks with God, whatever it might be, and you begin kind of frantic, kind of this, and little on edge, and Lord, and what, and what are we going to do, and all of this, and I hope you ate your spinach today, God, because this is a big one, you know, and I'm going to need the big strong arms, and... and, uh, and then you keep on talking it, God, talking it over with 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 God until you end up just saying, you're too much, Lord, I praise you. Beat him, bust him, that's our custom, you know. And we're, and we're just offering up worship and praise to him. Again, sometimes people say, how long do I pray about this? there isn't a set time related to prayer. Sometimes you pray this length of time sometimes you pray that length of time sometimes we hit a circumstance in our life where it's going to require a little bit more but how long do we pray? We pray until we're no longer dominated by what we're praying about but it's translated into seeing God as big as He is and then offering praise to the Lord and then we get up from our place of prayer. Now we're seeing it uh, correctly and so that's what David does He, uh, he lifts up praise to the Lord. And it teaches us, one of the things that it teaches us is, for as God's people is that no matter how, uh, how greatly wickedness and the wicked enlarge in the world, they should never ever rob us of our joy or rob us of our ability and our practice of worshiping the Lord. If they do that, We are allowing them a, a, we're allowing them to intrude into our heart, into our mind, and even into the realm of our relationship with God. We're allowing them to intrude way too far. And so no matter who is what, no matter how wicked this person is or that person is or the world is or this, it should never affect our ability to worship God, enjoy our relationship with the Lord, and to be able to sing praises to Him. So we'll stop there tonight and we'll pick it up, pick up Psalm uh, 60, Lord willing, uh, next week. So if the worship team come forward, I'd like us to i spend a little bit of time, our remaining minutes here this evening, being able to just offer up some praise and some worship to the Lord, whether in line with what we've looked at tonight or in, in uh, line with something else that the Lord might have on his heart.